Good morning, everybody. Um, we're finally here, the final day of the retreat, and um, I hope you were uh, encouraged, blessed as I was, as I had the opportunity to share with you God's Word. Um, also, thank you for that uh, wonderful time of praise. So encouraged. I actually knew all the songs this time. <laughs> I was able to participate. Thank you. Uh, for that said, I hope uh, our closing song will be one that I can recognize as well. So, um, so uh, as I said in my first talk a couple days ago, is that I very rarely uh, do retreats. But when I ever do retreats, I always um, end with a similar idea in terms of the last message. You know, the, the, the whole idea of a retreat is that you get away from the world and you can just have singular focus and, and focus on the gospel, focus on God, and just kind of forget the world for the past, whatever, how many days the retreat is. But now you guys are getting ready to go back to the world today. And I always feel the last message has to kind of be more like a, a commissioning message or a message that just really prepares you to go back into the world, especially a world that's kind of dark and broken as it is. And we kind of touched a little bit about that last night in the sermon on prayer. <clears throat> but today, I want to give a little bit more of a focused, direct uh, preparation as we all go back into a world where I know there are things waiting for us that maybe we might not want to go back to. So we're going to uh, look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 as kind of the text to inform us, prepare us, and equip us to go back out into the world. So let's uh, all stand, as we always do at Cornerstone, and read our passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. <laughs> Here now, the reading of God's word. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let's pray for the Lord's blessing. Father, now as we come to an end of this retreat, we thank you for all that you have already done. And we also ask now that you will... One last time in this last message, do again of encouraging us, empowering us, and equipping us through your word. Lord, your word is life, and without it, we are lost. It is the guiding light because it provides the guiding truth and principles for us to live a life of blessing in a world that is so dark and filled with curses. Father, I ask now that as we have one final opportunity to sit at your feet at this retreat, would you speak powerfully? 
that you would encourage us, that you would enlighten us and challenge us to think differently, to feel differently, to act differently, so that we would be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus is the reason for the season. You guys ever heard that phrase before? Jesus is the reason for the season. You're thinking, yeah, Pastor, I've heard that before. Guess what? Wrong month. Christmas is not another four months away. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not the season for Jesus. You think, well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, listen, that may be the problem. It may be that too often and too many minimize the significance of Jesus so that after Christmas is over, we put away the decorations, we put away the wreath, we put away the tree, and Jesus. He fits in the box. And as we put the box away somewhere, maybe in the attic and or in the basement, he's out of sight and out of mind. And one of the consequences that happens when you are absent-minded, practically absent-minded about Jesus, is that you do this. You sigh. You breathe out a breath of air that reveals your frustration that the world you live in is no friend of yours. We're finishing today our retreat. And this is the final message. And I wanted to finish this message by looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. The reason why I decided to do this is because the whole book is trying to address this issue of how do you deal with the fact that you live in a world that just sucks sometimes? How do you deal with the fact that reality sometimes is no friend to you? And all throughout this book, the author, an interesting man who identifies himself as Kohelet, what an interesting name, right? He identifies himself as Kohelet, and all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he addresses various issues in life that make us do this, that make us sigh, that breathes out a breath of air that's here one moment and gone the next, a breath of air to where if it could talk, it would say, meaningless, meaningless, all of it is all meaningless. And today, Kohelet is going to address an issue that initially might seem very vague and therefore irrelevant, but as I hope to show you, it is very relevant and it's very important for you to understand right now. And that is this understanding of the seasons, or as I'm going to put it in my message, our understanding of time. Because in the Hebrew, the word for season and time are the same word. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you about time. Number one, first we're going to talk about the uncertainty of time. Number two, we're going to talk about the Lord of all time. And finally, we're going to end it with the redeeming of our time, the uncertainty of time, the Lord of all time, and the redeeming of our time. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the, re the uncertainty of time. Now, when you first read this passage, especially the first eight verses, you can't help but to think how beautifully written it is. Hebrew scholars are unanimous in saying that Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, is some of the most beautiful poetic words ever written, not only in the Hebrew Bible, but in all of literature. And because that is the case, you may be tempted to think that the writer who is writing these words must be in a very calm, very peaceful, serene state of mind, as if he's somewhere off into the cabins of a beautiful natural scenery, right, with a nice cup of chamomile tea, and he's writing these words, to everything there is a season, right? You just kind of read this, and you're like, wow, this guy must be so at peace with life. But if that's what you're thinking, you could not be even more wrong, right? That is not the case at all. The person who is writing these words, verses 1 through 8, is a man who is over, overwhelmed with terror. He is, 
He is in a manic state of mind. He is overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and uncertainty. This guy is in a place of darkness. Now, you hear that and you're like, Pastor, are you sure you're interpreting this correctly? Because I just heard what you just read and it doesn't sound like that. I didn't pick up any sort of negative vibe coming from the words that the author is writing. Where are you getting this? Well, let me show you, okay? Don't zero in on any set of particular words or any series of sentences. Instead, I want you to zoom out and take a panoramic view of verses 1 through 8, okay? And as you do, let me ask you, do you notice a pattern, right? Do you see a recurring dynamic that the author is doing as he's writing all these words out? Don't you see that he's going back and forth between something that is good and something that is bad, something that is evil, right? For example, in verse 2, he starts off saying, there's a time to be born, and then there's a time to die. Then he goes on, there's a time to be planted, and then plucked up. And then verse 3, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, then a time to build up. Verse 4, a time to weep, and a time to laugh. And on and on he goes, just back and forth. Koheleth, as he's observing life, seems to see a never-ending battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, to where sometimes the forces of good are winning and you have good seasons, and then you have times where it seems like evil is winning, and you go through evil seasons, terrible times. And because he notices this back-and-forth dynamic between good and evil, he says what he does in verse 1. To everything there is a season. Let me explain what he means by that. When it comes to weather, there are four seasons, right? Fall, winter, spring, and summer, right? And the way that it works is that within one year, these four seasons cycle through, and the following year, they recycle again. But according to Kohelet, when it comes to life, there are only two seasons, okay? There are good seasons where babies are born, where relationships are healthy, where people are laughing, and then there are bad seasons. There are evil seasons where babies are dying, Right? Where relationships fall apart and people are weeping. And just like the four seasons of weather, it seems like these two seasons of life cycle through all throughout your life. And because that is true, do you know what that means? It means it is utterly foolish and ridiculous to ever expect and hope that life is always going to be good. Just like it's ridiculous for us to hope that the weather is always going to be like fall weather. Because as sure as the cold, bitter winds of winter are coming your way, so also are the cold bitterness of sorrow and pain coming your way. And there is nothing you or I can do about it. Nothing. It is going to happen. If you land a job of your dreams and you feel like you're at the peak of your career, you're going to have to taste the bitterness of one day of being forced out either through retirement or worse through politics or being fired. If you enjoy the bliss of having children and you love your family and you just love your home, you're going to have to taste the bitterness of one day that your beautiful children are going to leave you. They're going to grow up and move on, or worse, they're going to get sick and they're going to pass away before you do. If you find the love of your life and you feel like you have this fairy tale marriage and you're just so, so happy, you're going to still have to taste the bitterness of one day that your spouse is going to leave you, either through death or even worse. They abandon you. They leave you behind. With all the wonderful goodness that this life can give us, it also gives us the bitterest sorrows as well. One powerful movie scene that captures exactly what Koheleth is saying is the movie The uh, Two Towers from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, it's basically an epic story between the forces of good battling the forces of evil. And I want to highlight two characters, two good guys, 
or a guy and a gal, actually. There's Aragon, the mighty warrior, right? And then there is Arawan, his love, a beautiful, mighty princess. These two people throughout the movies are deeply in love, and they just seem like they can never be pulled apart. But of course, in this second part of the trilogy series, Arawan's father, Lord Arawan, tells her, you need to call it off with Aragon. You need to sever your ties to him. Not because he hates Aragorn, he has nothing against him at all, okay? But because of the fact that they live in a world where they're constantly battling at war with the evil villain, Sauron, right? That has made the world dark and chaotic and unsafe, not the kind of place where love and family can flourish. He says, you need to cut it off with him. And as every daughter does, she stubbornly says, no, dad, right? No. Why? Because she thinks that her love for Aragon and Aragon's love for her can wait it out until the season of darkness is over and then they can now venture into the season of joy and light and their love can be happily ever after. But of course her father, in his wisdom, changes her mind when he says these sobering words. He writes this, or he said this in the movie. If Aragon survives this war, you will still be parted. If Sauron is defeated and Aragon made king and all that you hope for comes true, you will still have to taste the bitterness of mortality. Whether by the sword or the slow decay of time, Aragon will die. And there will be no comfort for you, no comfort to ease the pain of his passing. He will come to death, an image of the splendor of the kings of men in glory, undimmed before the breaking of the world. But you, my daughter, you will linger on in darkness and in doubt. As night falls in winters that comes without a star, here you will dwell, bound to your grief under the fading trees, until all the world is changed and the long years of your life are utterly spent. <laughs> Pretty downer, right? <laughs> and yet it does its job. Because at that moment, Erewhon reluctantly forsakes Aragon. Because even though she deeply loves her man, she has been convinced that it's a hopeless love. Right? And it's the same hopelessness that Kohelet is trying to convey in verses 1 through 8 as he observes the world we live in. You see, Kohelet noticed that as much as there are experiences in this world that are wonderful, as much as there are people in this world that are so precious to you, nevertheless, he is constantly, chronically haunted with this sense of fear and hopelessness that all these things and all these people that he cherishes so much are going to be threatened and taken away from him. And as a result, he does this. He sighs. And maybe, just maybe, that's why you sigh too. You turn on the news, and you look at the political landscape of our country today, and you see the vitriol, you see the chaos, and you wonder, is this country that I love, that I want to raise my family in, is it going to be a stable country? You go on Facebook and you see horrific videos of cop-killing people, people killing cops, and you're thinking, is this society that I live in safe? You look at the economy and you consider the effects of how it can have, like at companies that you work for, and you wonder, am I still going to be able to provide food on the table or roof over my kids' heads? And speaking of our kids, what if one day your child comes home with a newsletter from the school, like I got this past year, informing you that they're now going to culturally educate your child in light of the shifting perspectives of gender and sexual identity, and you're thinking, are my kids safe? Everywhere we look, it just seems there's this never-ending battle against forces that threaten our livelihood and our loved ones. And you can't help but wonder, is this how life is always going to be? Is life really this vicious cycle of going back and forth, of good and evil, never-ending? Or worse, is reality like the way Chinese philosophers 
Satan. That in order to have good, you need evil. Good cannot exist without evil. Listen to how one Chinese philosopher, Zhang Zhu, how he puts it. He writes, life and death are one, right and wrong are the same. Is this how life is? If it is, then life is meaningless. It's hopeless. Why? Because it gives you no courage to keep going when evil time comes. Because even if you endure and you conquer a season of evil in your life, it's a short-lived victory because you know that it's going to come again. And furthermore, that means when you're in a season of goodness right now, you can't be fully present, you can't fully enjoy it because in the back of your head you're thinking right around the corner, evil is going to come back and ruin it and sabotage everything. You see, Kohelet is trying to capture with his words one of the biggest reasons why you and I sigh. And that is we can't understand the meaning of history. What do I mean by that? The meaning of history. Consider uh, this quote from theologian Hendrikus Burkhoff, because I think he explains it well. He writes this quote, Our generation is strangled with fear. Fear for man, fear for his future, and for the direction in which we are driven against our will and desire. And out of this crime comes a cry for illumination concerning the meaning of the existence of mankind and concerning the goal to which we are directed. It is a cry for an answer to the old question of the meaning of history. In other words, trying to figure out the meaning of history is trying to figure out the direction of reality. Is reality one straight line where it's going in one direction, right? Where the end of this line is a place of permanent safety, permanent goodness, and where evil is permanently vanquished? Or is reality more like a circle, where it's a vicious circle of good and evil, ad infinitum, never ending? Right? Yin and yang. Is that what reality is? Well, that is the question Solomon now wants to address and ease our hearts with by going to my next point, the Lord of all time. Skip down to our passage, and let's read again verse 14, where Kohelet says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now this is very interesting because now the Kohelet that we meet in verse 14 is radically different than the one that we've encountered in verses 1 through 8. Because now we see a God who is not terrified. He's not in a manic state of mind. He is hopeful. He is optimistic. He is full of joy. And we can't help but to wonder, what happened, Kohelet? What happened between verses 8 to 14 to where you start off feeling gloom and doom and in a crazy state of mind, but now you are at peace. You are serene. What happened? He tells us, verse 14, he perceived that what God does endures forever, and nothing can be added to it, and nothing be taken, nothing can be taken away from it. In other words, he comes to realize that God is so powerful that whatever he does, it cannot be undone. And furthermore, he realized that God is so powerful, he is so sovereign, even the things that he has not done yet, what he plans to do is as good as done. Verse 15, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. God is so powerful, he is so sovereign that no force in this reality can force his plan or undo what he is already doing. And because that is true, you know what that means? History is not a cycle of good and evil that never ends. No, history is a one-line direction where it will go into fulfillment of what God has planned, and it will continue what God has done. But of course, that begs the question. What is this plan? What is this unchanging, unalterable right, plan that is as good as done? 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it reads, 
For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days he has revealed for your sake. Through Christ you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. God's singular plan before he created anything was to save sinners by saving them from the evil one, Satan. Let me say that again. God's singular plan before the creation of the world was to save sinners by saving them from the evil one, Satan. And God executed this plan flawlessly when he became a man, Jesus Christ, and he ransomed us, as Peter says. That is, he paid the full penalty of all of our sins, which was nothing less than suffering the full wrath of God. Okay? He paid that debt himself when he suffered on the cross as your Savior. That is the message of the Bible. You see, according to the Bible, history is not a battleground between good versus evil. Rather, it's a battleground between God versus evil. And God's plan to once and for all get rid of evil was accomplished on the cross. And evil, no matter how much it attempted to, could not undermine this accomplishment of the cross. In fact, just to show how powerful God is, he actually uses evil to fulfill the work of the cross so that he could completely destroy evil. You get that? Listen to how one theologian, Anthony Hokema, puts it. He writes, quote, God is king and acts in history to bring history to a divinely directed goal. God is in control of history. This does not mean that he manipulates man as if they were puppets. Man's freedom to make his own decisions and his responsibilities for those decisions are all at times maintained. But it does mean that God overrules even the evil deeds of men so as to make them serve his purpose. The supreme illustration of God's sovereign control over history is, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Though unquestionably the most wicked deed in history, even this terrible crime was completely under God's control. The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined before and according to your will. Acts chapter 4. Precisely because of God's control, the most accursed deed in history became the heart of God's redemptive plan and the supreme source of blessing to mankind. As the author of Psalm 76 puts it, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. Amen. God has defeated evil when he sent his son Jesus Christ to be our ransom, to be our substitute savior. Because on the cross, what did Jesus do? He paid the full penalty of all of our sins, past, present, and future. We have the full forgiveness of sin, and that is so important. Why? Because now he has disarmed Satan, the evil one. It is justification in bringing evil into our lives. Do you know that Satan is the accuser? His main role in our lives is to accuse us. And what does he accuse us of? He accuses us of our sins. right? And he goes to God and he points to our sins and he says, God, you are holy. And your holiness obligates you to condemn, to judge, to banish, to destroy sinners. Right? And Satan would be justified in that claim. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, Satan is no longer justified in his accusation, no longer obligating God to destroy us, but instead because Jesus' justification of us, 
God is justified in loving us, saving us, and calling us His own. You see? It is through the cross that He defeats the evil one and therefore strips the evil one of His authority over us to bring evil into our life. Now you hear that and you're like, wait a minute, Pastor. I hear what you're saying. But if that is true, that Jesus' death on the cross was God's plan to destroy evil and it is accomplished, and therefore the evil one has no power over me, then why do I still struggle with evil seasons? Why is there so bad seasons coming into my life? Because clearly, originating from him, but if he has no authority and power, as you said, if I have my faith in Jesus, why is he still allowing the evil one to bring evil seasons into my life? That's a great question. But Koheleth answers that with a very beautiful statement in verse 11 where he writes this, He, God, has put eternity in our hearts, into man's heart. Isn't that beautiful? God has put eternity in our hearts, but what does that mean? Right? Sounds beautiful. We don't understand. What it it's kind of like when I listen to Korean sappy music. It sounds beautiful. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I read the lit- English translation, I'm like, oh, okay, it's not that beautiful. Anymore. <laughs> but it's like, oh, it's so poetic. What, what does it mean? God has put eternity in our hearts. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, home is where the heart is? You know what that means? It means our hearts long for a place where we are safe, our loved ones are safe, and all that is good and beautiful and delightful of the world is there. But conversely, all that is wicked, all that is perverse, all that is dark and wicked, right, is not there. That's home. And according to Kohelet, our home is eternity, right? It's the place where there is no time. There's no past, there's no present, there's no future, there's no history. What does that mean when there is no history in eternity? There's no battleground between God and evil, right? And because there's no battleground in eternity, there's no battle because God is one, right? In eternity, evil is fully vanquished and there is no more evil seasons. But here's the thing, folks. Christian, listen. We are not in eternity, right? We're still in history right now. We are still in time. You see, even though God defeated evil on the cross definitively, that defeat still hasn't been fully realized. Let me say that again. Even though God defeated evil on the cross definitively, that defeat hasn't been fully realized yet. Let me try to give you um, an illustration to help you understand this. I don't know if any guys into boxing or any of you guys like to watch MMA. So I have a bunch of guys in my church, they just love MMA and boxing. I'm trying to encourage them not to be so bloody, but but it's a perfect illustration. You know, if you ever watch boxing or an MMA fight, right, every now and then you see a guy who just hits a punch or kicks a kick, and the commentator's like, oh, it's done, it's over, right? Even though there's still plenty of time left on the round, even though the clock is still ticking, right? The commentators, because they just have seen fights and they're seasoned commentators, they just know the death blow has been hit, right? The fight is over, even though officially it's not over yet, right? That is a picture of what Koheleth is talking about. If that's still unclear to you, let me read you another quote from Anthony Hogan. Listen to what he says. Here we see the ambiguity of history. History does not reveal a simple triumph of good over evil, not a total victory of evil over good. Evil and God, excuse me, evil and good continue to exist side by side. Conflicts between the two continues until the present age. But since Christ has won the victory, the ultimate outcome of the conflict is never in doubt. The enemy is fighting a losing battle. Okay, so here's my second attempt with another illustration with what all of this means. Imagine for a moment there is a woman who is pregnant. Okay, just imagine. 
I don't have to imagine because there's one waiting for me at home. <laughs> but for the rest of you, imagine for a moment there is a pregnant woman. Let's say ever since she was a little girl, she just yearned and dreamed and fantasized of being a mom, right? She just, like, that's the biggest goal she wanted to achieve in life. She just wants to be a mom and, and, and just enjoy being a mom, playing with her child, dressing her child, taking care of her child, feeding her child, you know, all these things, right? Taking her child to soccer practice, that, that's her dream. And let's say this woman is pregnant, she's in her third trimester. Let me ask you, is that woman a mom? Is she a mom? Well, yes, but no, right? She's kind of already a mom, but she's not yet a mom, right? Yes, she is a mom, but she has not yet experienced the joy and bliss of being a mom, right? And Christian, that is a perfect picture of what we are. We have victory over the evil one. But we have not yet experienced the joy and bliss of what that victory guarantees. But as sure as that mom will have joy and bliss in her life because that child is coming, Christian, you too will have joy and bliss where there is no more evil in life because your Christ is coming for you. And he is bringing eternity. Right? Where he will end history and this vicious cycle of good and evil will finally be severed and no more will you go, <sighs> but it's said to go, <sighs> right? Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16, John 16 verses 20 to 22. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Joy is coming for you, Christian, because eternity is coming with Jesus. And as sure as a baby is coming to a pregnant woman, eternity is coming for you. Now, the obvious response that you will get when you hear something like this is, well, why can't Jesus come now, <laughs> right? Why is he prolonging the clock? Why does he just end history and usher in eternity? I mean, I am tired. I am exhausted, God. Why don't you just finish it? Right? It's kind of like my wife right now. Just get this thing out of me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> We're saying, just hurry up and come already. That's a great question. And this is where we end it with my final point, the redeeming of our time. Read again that last statement in verse 15. God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. This is a very um, difficult verse to interpret. All the commentators really don't know what to do with this, right? Because it's so vague and so opaque. But if we consider what we've been saying in this message, I think we can clearly understand what Kohelet is saying. We ask, God, what's the delay? Why are you prolonging the clock? What reason, what possible reason could you have to why you keep prolonging history and delaying eternity. Goheleth tells us, God seeks what has been driven away. If you want to encapsulate what the main message of the Bible is, do you know what it would be? God seeks lost sinners. God seeks lost sinners. And why does God seek lost sinners? Because the Bible says God loves lost sinners. All of you in here at one point was a lost sinner, right? But now you're not a lost sinner. You are a redeemed sinner. You're a saved sinner. 
Maybe it happened last year, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. But let me ask you, what if Jesus ushered in eternity before then? It would suck to be you, right? <laughs> Thank God he didn't prematurely usher in eternity before you transitioned from death to life. And God would never have made that mistake. You know why? Because he knew before the foundation of the world that you would be with him for all eternity. But guess what? There are people here and now, there are people who don't yet even exist who haven't made that transition yet, and we have to wait for them too. 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 10. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements of some will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. God is going to end history. It is going to happen. Eternity will come. But he just wants to make sure that those whom he has predestined to be there with him and with you for all eternity are all there, including your non-Christian parent, your non-Christian sibling, maybe your non-Christian spouse, maybe your non-Christian grandchildren who don't even exist yet. You see? Eternity is coming. But he first has to seek those that have been driven away. Here's the thing, Christian. He wants you to be a part of that search, too. He wants you to participate in seeking out those who have been driven away. And Kohelet tells us how we do that in verses 12 to 13. Read it one more time. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Here Kohelet tells us, Christian, what we are to do as we wait in history for eternity to come. He says, be joyful and do good. Right? What does that mean? To be joyful means, instead of doing this, you do this. Not sigh in frustration, but you sigh with relief. Right? And practically that means when good times come, you enjoy it. When it's time to party, you party hard. When it's time to celebrate, you celebrate with joy so that the people around you, right, who don't understand that will say, what's going on? Aren't you terrified about the coming winter, the coming evil coming? How could you go like, ah, and up, ah, right? <laughs> and that's when you say, because Jesus is the reason for this season. But then not only that, you do good, right? You toil, right? You work hard. You are a good worker. You are a good spouse. You are a good child. You are a good servant, right? Why? So that people who don't want to be good servants because they're just so fed up and so pessimistic because, oh, what's the bother of working so hard when evil times is going to ruin everything that I work so hard for anyway? They'll look at you and be like, how can you be so confident? How can you be so vigilant and being so good at what you do? Aren't you worried that the evil season that's bound to come is just going to ruin everything? You know, the water's going to wash over the sandcastle that you But Why? And then you say, because Jesus is the reason for the season. Because I believe that Jesus is going to take this season and it's going to remind me of 
what is to come, a foretaste of the eternal season that will never end. The eschatological California. Right? You go to California, you don't have four seasons, it's just sunny days. Right? I shouldn't say that because I'm an East Coast guy. And I'll never use this message at a West Coast surf, uh, retreat or anything if I ever get invited out there. But you get the point. The season never ends because eternity is forever. The battle has been won. Evil has been defeated. Cornerstone, as you get ready to go back, and no doubt there is a season of evil and sorrow waiting for you, my charge and my encouragement to you is remember Jesus and the season that he established, the eternity that is to come, and the hope that you have, knowing that this vicious cycle, it's going to end. And it will end because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Father, now as we have finally come to a close with this word, I pray for my brothers and sisters with all the challenges that they face collectively as a church and also individually, I pray that you will help them to never fall into despair to where they would just go and think meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanities, all of it is meaningless. No, Father, help us to see the joy and the bliss that we have to where when good seasons come, we can enjoy it deeply and authentically, and we can work hard with good toil, with good service, as parents, as children, as workers, so that we can testify of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that especially to our witness, to the non-Christians in our social networks, help us to truly display the idea that Jesus is the reason for this season of joy because it anticipates the eternal joy that will be forever ours, a joy that we want to share with them. Help us to live out a faithful witness so that they too, if they have been called by you before the foundation of the world, will be able to be part of this eternity and will be that much closer to the end of this history than to the beginning of eternal life. I pray that you will do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.